Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We haven't at this point. Now, that's not to say that we won't have discussions about that this week or as we move forward if we're not able to find a peak uh, in these numbers and in our hospitalization numbers. The voice of Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who will be joining us uh, tomorrow on the program, talking about uh, what he was referencing there. And that is the issue of uh, COVID patients and numbers of cases in the province of Saskatchewan, which the Canadian Medical Association is saying that both in Alberta and Saskatchewan is at crisis levels. Uh, there are other issues that go along with the COVID uh, reality, of course, the uh, issue of other medical um, procedures being postponed or canceled. Organ transplants have been delayed in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So how bad is it? How much worse might things become without intervention? What does the Canadian Medical Association want done? Joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Dr. Catherine Smart. She's the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thank you for coming back. You were with us last weekend, and we were talking about the procedures that have been cancelled and postponed because of COVID and what was necessary, and now we're talking about the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan and what they're facing. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, would you just describe the situation from your perspective as president of the CMA and what you're hearing from your members in Alberta and Saskatchewan as far as COVID infections at present in both numbers and severity in the province is concerned. Absolutely. You know, we are hearing daily from physicians in both provinces about just how desperate things have become. You know, several physicians are, are really wanting the public to understand that in many ways the health care systems there have already collapsed. They're only at this point in time able to provide acute care services for people that have life and limb surgery, meaning they need to be operated on within 72 hours. Every other type of surgery has been cancelled. Um, you know, you referred to some of that as you in your opening. Their ICUs, you know, they've added a lot of surge beds, which has over doubled the capacity and the number of people that can receive critical care. But that means every other area of the hospital that would normally be doing other things is trying to care for patients with COVID. These people are incredibly sick. We've seen data over the last two weeks that shows people in both those provinces are dying at three times the rate of people with COVID throughout the rest of the country. Um, so it's really, really dire. And this is on the backdrop of healthcare professionals who are incredibly burnt out. They have been working so hard now for months. Uh, nurses with you know, tons of mandated overtime, which means you might have worked 12 hours and then you're told, no, you can't go home because we don't have a nurse to replace you. You have to come back tomorrow. You can't have a day off. This, this, that's what that means. So that just contributes to the ongoing burnout and people are starting to leave the health workforce. Um, and I think really what we're hearing is people are really afraid that if the government doesn't take some significant action in terms of public health mitigation, um, they're going to be, next step is going to be actually denying some people any care. Um, so I think it's really hit the rock bottom. Um, and what we're really hoping is that the two leaders of those two provinces start actually listening to the people that are inside the house that is indeed burning down. So it's interesting you talk about care and uh, access to care. And I would imagine when it comes to life and limb surgery, as you said, or life and limb procedures, if they're not done, I mean, if they're not life and limb today and they're not being taken care of, they'll become life and limb tomorrow, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's that is one thing for sure that people's yeah. illness or problem can get worse. 
The other piece of that is some of these procedures are diagnostic procedures, right? So do you have cancer? Well, now we don't know for two or three months. So now your cancer has spread. You know, you have a tumor that's pushing on something and now one of your organs fails because it wasn't removed in time. I mean, these are the types of things that we're, we're talking about. So there's no question we will see ongoing health consequences for people because of these uh, inability to provide the care they need in the timeline they would have normally received it. Dr. Smart, when you talk about availability of care, of, of medical care, and, and we're talking about maximum capacity in, uh, in, in hospital space and, and uh, healthcare personnel availability, but there's also the issue, and it's one, the question of ethics, and we talked about it a bit in the last hour, and people get angry at me. I'm not the one who's suggesting this take place, but I know the debates are taking place. They're certainly taking place in the southern United States. Will triaging potentially get to the point where a person who's vaccinated will perhaps receive quicker care than the person who isn't vaccinated? I know it's a terribly difficult issue for healthcare professionals to address, but are we getting to that point? I think, you know, our medical ethics really dictate to us in the profession that we treat everybody the same. You know, we don't judge people and offer them care based on their pre-existing status or why they come into our facility. Um, Because you can imagine the slippery slope that that would be in terms of who's deserving of care. Um, But I think what's more distressing is, you know, if we're at the point where we're talking about having to triage care, then why aren't we just taking action? Why aren't we putting in place the public health strategies that we know work. Yes, it's inconvenient. People don't like it. But it's we're talking about, you know, two or four weeks of someone's life versus someone who's going to lose their life or lose their wellness. Um, so to me, it, it seems, you know, it's incredible to think that we're considering this type of thing without actually just taking the action that we know would avoid that. What, what are you asking the, uh, the premiers to do? We're really asking for a multi-pronged approach. Um, you know, the first thing is really utilizing any public health strategies that can be used. And we're starting to slowly see these things happening, right? Slowly coming around to the idea of a vaccine certificate, you know, slowly starting to decrease some numbers in terms of gathering sizes, bringing in some masking, bringing back some trace test, isolate for cases. But what we really need is a full commitment to all of those things. And the other thing that's been really being talked about and called for from the healthcare professionals in those provinces is a circuit breaker, where you really try to limit people's interactions, closing down non-essential services for a short period of time to stop this exponential rise in COVID so that things can come back to a a bit of a better baseline, and then we can move forward from there. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is, of course, increasing vaccination. We know that those two provinces have the lowest rates of vaccination, and that's a problem. Um, And we need more vaccine mandates to encourage people to get vaccinated at certain segments where people are working with vulnerable populations to ensure that they're vaccinated. But that's going to help us in the long term. That's not going to help us here in the next four four to eight weeks. So we still need those other actions. And then the third thing we're recommending is that they consider now potentially moving some patients to other provinces that are doing better, like Ontario, who's offered to help to offload some of this capacity so they're not at such a critical level um, and consider mobilizing healthcare providers from other areas to come and help so that some of their workforce can actually get a break. Mandatory vaccinations? What do you think? We're definitely calling for that in cases like, for example, healthcare. We called for that in August. We like we do think that anyone who works in healthcare should be vaccinated. You know, we've seen mm-hmm. examples, particularly in places like long-term care, where healthcare providers have brought COVID into the facility. So, you know, when people are vulnerable, they deserve to be protected. 
I think we're going to hear more talk about the government bringing in mandates for their employees, and that's happening in some places. We know the federal government's doing that. Um, and then there's also oh, they're talking the about doing it. system. The yeah. federal government's talking about doing it. They're talking. But I, I hear exactly what you're saying. The action. Yeah. When you look at Alberta and Saskatchewan now, and we're going to be speaking with Premier Mo tomorrow, when you look at Alberta and Saskatchewan today, when you look at the other provinces, how close are they to the difficulty Alberta and Saskatchewan are in? Are there, is, it, is it a consistent picture across the country, or does it vary by region, by province? I think it really varies. You know, right now, those two provinces are really struggling. We're also, unfortunately, seeing a large outbreak right now in the Northwest Territories. Um, that, that's happening. And then, of course, because it's a small population, when you have an outbreak per capita, the number of cases is very high. And that's been very stressful for people there because, of course, they have quite limited resources being a small territory. And then we're starting to see some uptick in New Brunswick as, as well with uh, rising cases and, and more action being taken as also. Um, but, the you know, the places I think right now that are really on fire are Alberta and Saskatchewan because of the impact we're seeing in the health system and the fact that it's really brought all of their acute care facilities down in terms of their ability to actually deliver care to anybody else. Um, and it's not, there's no signs of this letting up, right? The, the peak is continuing to rise. And that's really the concern is Delta is so efficient at spreading that once it takes hold in some of these areas where vaccination rates are low, it just has, you know, innumerable number of people it can spread through. Um, and that's what's happening right now in those places. So the fundamental answer, if I'm looking for one fundamental action to take, one, uh, as the layperson, I hear you saying that most significance, significant is to get the vaccination numbers up significantly and i'm talking about long term here now short term maybe as well but but long term the idea the need is to get the vaccination numbers up we've been hearing that for over a year and there was great enthusiasm for the arrival of the vaccines for the majority of the population and the majority of the population is vaccinated but what's the number that we need to reach is there such a number we are estimating that given that now Delta is the predominant variant, that likely at least 85 to 90 percent of the population needs to be vaccinated to really have an opportunity for herd immunity. And that will likely not be possible until children can be vaccinated, younger children, because they are 15 percent of the population. But we also know that that's around the corner, right? Pfizer's released the data set yesterday to Health Canada. Um, and we're optimistic that vaccines will be approved in that younger age group soon. And that's going to then open up a whole nother group of Canadians that will be eligible for vaccination. And that will really help us drive up towards that higher number that we need to really see the impact from vaccine. Do you think people are hearing you? Gen- generally across the country, are. do you think people are listening? I do. Like, I think over, you know, right now we're standing about 80% of eligible Canadians broadly speaking, have been vaccinated. It's higher in some areas, lower in others. So most people are listening. The challenge, I think, is how do we get to the people who aren't hearing the message? How do we address their concerns? And how do we encourage them to hear the accurate information so that they can feel comfortable choosing vaccinations? So what I see in the way of emails fairly regularly during the week, I'll see it a couple of times a day, is this that in the interest of public safety, vaccination must be mandatory, and failure to agree to vaccination may result in heavy fines. Now, I know that's political, that's not your territory, but that's what I see and that's what I hear, and that's what I'm going to ask my uh, my callers to, uh, to express their thoughts on in just a moment. 
But when I say that, what's your reaction? I don't think you're likely going to see the government make vaccination mandatory for citizens. I think that will be unlikely. But what they can do is mandate what you're allowed to do if you're not vaccinated. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, where we have the ability to... Um, you know, create safe spaces for people who are vaccinated by only being able to access certain services if you've been vaccinated. And that over time is going to create much safer public spaces. Yeah, they certainly found in France when uh, the president of France said, uh, as of, I think it was sometime in September, they were not going to allow anybody who was unvaccinated into specific public areas like malls. They had a 3.7 million a person uptick in vaccination in a matter of days. Dr. Smart, thank you very much for coming back on the program. Appreciate talking to you always. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.